you have a Bible, turn with me please to the book of Ezekiel. You'll find Ezekiel towards the back of the Old Testament. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 830. And over the next few months, God willing, we're going to look together at this book. I would guess it's a book many of us aren't familiar with. We might connect Ezekiel with the song about the dry bones, but maybe that's about it. Some of us might say that even though we've read the book, we're not much the wiser as to what the book is actually about. So Ezekiel is fresh ground for many of us. We don't really know what it has in store for us. And we can come to this book with enthusiasm. The New Testament tells us this book, because it's part of Scripture, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Those are the Apostle Paul's words from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So we come to this part of Scripture with God's promise that it's useful for us. I'm not going to spend time on an introduction to Ezekiel. We're just going to jump in at the deep end this morning and try to swim, and we'll deal with introductory things as we go along in the book. So Ezekiel chapter 1, if you have your Bible open there, and I'll read the whole chapter. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kebar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four of them had the face of a man. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. And on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upwards. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side. And two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures... I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. 
This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out, one towards the other. Each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is God's word. We'll look at this together. And then we'll ask, in what way is this the vision we need? Before we get to the vision itself, we're given a context here. This is a vision in exile. Verse 1 says, In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Ezekiel says this happened in the 30th year. Well, the 30th year of what? He doesn't tell us. But he's probably referring to his age. He saw this vision in his 30th year. We'll think in a moment why that might be significant for Ezekiel. Then he says, I was among the exiles by the Kebar River. The Kebar River is in Babylon. There's Babylon... But Ezekiel is from the land of Israel. That's roughly 500 miles away to the west. What's Ezekiel doing in Babylon? Well, about 800 years before this, Joshua had led God's people into the land of Canaan. That's what we refer to as Israel. It was the land God had promised them long before. And under Joshua's leadership, the people went in and they took the land. Eventually, 
Israel had its own kingship. The most famous kings were David and his son Solomon. But after Solomon died, the kingdom was split in two. You can see that on the map. The northern kingdom continued to be called Israel, even though it was only part of Israel. And the southern kingdom was called Judah. And in the years that followed, the history of Israel and Judah was one long spiral of disobedience to God and idol worship. Now, there were occasional bright spots in that time, but the overwhelming picture was one of rebellion against God. During that time, God repeatedly warned them that their rebellion was going to have consequences. If they didn't repent and turn back to him, their land would be taken away from them. But the disobedience continued. Finally, the Assyrians came from the north and carried many of the northerners into exile. Then the Babylonians came from the east and they conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. The prophet Daniel was taken to Babylon in the first wave of Judean exiles. Then nine years later, thousands more were taken into exile in Babylon. Ezekiel was among that second group. That briefly is why Ezekiel is sitting by the Kebar River. He's not there by choice. He's there because of the sin and disobedience of his ancestors. Sin and disobedience that was carried on by his contemporaries. In verse 2, either Ezekiel himself or a later editor of the book has given us the precise date of this vision. The fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. King Jehoiachin had been taken to Babylon along with the other exiles. And the precise date then is 593 BC. 593 years before the birth of Christ. Verse 3 gives us another piece of information. Ezekiel is referred to as the priest, the son of Buzi. There's a footnote at the bottom of the page in your NIV which tells us this could also be translated Ezekiel, son of Buzi, the priest. But either way, we're being told here that Ezekiel is from a priestly family. He would have been destined to become a priest himself. Then he would have served at the temple in Jerusalem. But the exile had made that impossible. Priests began their service at the age of 30. That's when they were ordained. But here's Ezekiel in his 30th year sitting by the Kebar River. The temple is hundreds of miles away. How can he serve God? God is distant from him. God is back in Jerusalem. He's in the temple, isn't he? This is the context in which verse 1 says, The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now I don't need to convince you about the differences between Ezekiel's situation and ours. The differences are very obvious. But it's worth thinking about the similarities. The New Testament refers to Christians as aliens and strangers in the world. We live in a world that's broken and messed up by sin. But if we belong to Christ, we have been bought for God. 
We belong in God's presence. Philippians says our citizenship is in heaven. We don't fit here. We're far from home here. Yes, this may be the land of our birth for most of us. You may even have lived in the same five-mile radius your whole life. But the day you were given citizenship in heaven, you became a stranger in this land. And we may often feel that God is distant. Where is he in this place where we go to work and have our holidays and do our shopping? Is God somewhere else? Is he in China or South America? Is he somewhere else where the church is thriving? Do we live in a God-forsaken place here in England? We're not too different from Ezekiel. We'll come back to this later. But now we come to the vision itself. It starts in verse 4, and it takes up the rest of the chapter. And before we look at this in a little bit of detail, there are two general things we can say. First of all, as Ezekiel records for us what he saw, he's trying to describe the indescribable. As we read this earlier, it probably seemed hard to follow. It's certainly not easy to picture what Ezekiel is describing. And that's part of the point. Ezekiel has seen visions of God. He has seen heavenly realities. But when he comes to try and explain to us what he saw, he's struggling. What he saw is just about beyond his ability to put into words. And that shouldn't be surprising. Human beings don't have experience of heavenly realities. When one human being is given a vision of those realities, how does he even begin to describe them to other people? Well, he does exactly what Ezekiel does. He tries to make comparisons with things that we do know. So all the way through chapter 1, we find comparison words. In the likeness of. It had the appearance of. It looked like. As it were. Over and over again. Put those all together, and 28 times in 28 verses, Ezekiel is saying, what I'm telling you doesn't exactly describe what I saw. But this is as close as I can get with human words. I'm trying to compare what I saw with things that you know. He's trying to describe the indescribable. And when we understand that, it helps us. Yes, this is hard to picture. It's a bit of a confused description. There's a lot of repetition in places. But we can live with that because Ezekiel is doing his best to give us a sense of what he saw and heard. He's trying to leave us with an impression of the experience he had. Those of you who are here when we looked at the book of Daniel in the evenings, you've already had a taste of this kind of thing with Daniel's visions. So having understood what Ezekiel is trying to do, what overall impression do we get from this when we stand back a little bit from this vision? Well, we've noticed that the vision is full of comparisons. It's also full of brightness, movement, and sound. 
In terms of brightness, we find the following phrases. Flashing light, brilliant light, lightning, fire, gleaming like burnished bronze, burning coals of fire, torches, bright, sparkling like chrysolite, glowing metal, full of fire, radiance, like a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. Brightness covers the whole vision. And then we find movement. A windstorm coming out of the north. Living creatures moving straight ahead. Fire moving back and forth among them. The creatures themselves speeding back and forth. Wheels with high and awesome rims moving with the creatures. Rising. Movement is all over the place. And then there's sound. The sound of the creature's wings is like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. There's deafening sound everywhere. Brightness, movement, and sound. We could sum it up as transcendent, active majesty. The other week, John Blanchard said that transcendent was one of his favorite words. And it's exactly the right word here. It describes what is above us and beyond us. What's free from human limitations. It's beyond our experience. It's beyond our ability to fully describe. And yet there are things we can say about this. There's a sense of majesty throughout this. There's lots of movement. The majesty is active. It's not idle or passive. It's alive and on the move. That's what we can say in very general terms. Then if we focus in on Ezekiel's description, we see a chariot throne. First of all, Ezekiel is shown the base of the throne. Fire, faces, wings and wheels. Now at first Ezekiel doesn't tell us this is the base of a throne. He doesn't realize that until later. But look at verse six, 4. Sorry. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. And down in verse 10, Ezekiel describes the faces of these four living creatures. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side each had the face of a lion, and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. So their facing forward face was human. Then facing right, a lion, facing left, an ox, And their facing backwards face was an eagle. What's the significance of this combination? Well, it seems very odd to us. But in Ezekiel's time, it would have been obvious. The lion was considered the highest of all the wild animals. It was strong, ferocious, and courageous. The eagle was the highest of the birds. It was fast, and yet it was also regal and majestic. In fact, we still use these animals symbolically today. Think of how many crests or emblems use the lion or the eagle. In rugby, we have the British lions. 
supposedly the best of all the players from Britain. Then there's the American Eagle. The ox was considered the highest of the domestic animals. Oxen were extremely valuable, and they were also fertile. And then finally, facing forward, these living creatures have human faces, the most dignified and noble creature of all. If you put all these together, you have some sense of the attributes of God. He's strong, he's majestic, he's swift to move, he has the power to create, and he has the wisdom to get all of it right. What about the wings on the creatures? Verse 11 says, Their wings were spread out upwards. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. Now I know that at this point, a good image on the screen would be very helpful for us. And I did try to find one of those, but honestly, they're terrible. And I don't want to leave you forever after with a corny drawing in your minds when you think of this. So instead, I've called in some help. I want to ask Mike, Lawrence, Izzy, Molly, and Rose if they'll come to the front at this point. And they're going to represent the four living creatures for us. What I want you to do, please, is stand in a square. So, Izzy, if you face forwards, and Molly, if you can face the music group, and Rose, if you're here, and Mike, there, all facing outwards. And what I want you to do is uh, raise your arms upwards, so roughly they're above your shoulders, and you're kind of touching your fingertips. Okay? I won't forget about you, but I want you to stay there for a couple of minutes. Because we want to add a couple of things into this picture. Each creature, we're told, has four wings. Two of them spread out upwards and something which you're not going to be able to do. Two others covering their body at the same time. And verses 13 and 14 emphasize something else that we can't see here. The fire and the movement that Ezekiel saw. Verse 13 says, The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. Then we learn that beside each living creature there are wheels. So there's one in each corner, each empty corner of that square. Verse 15, As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. It's likely that the eyes on the wheels were eye-shaped jewels, so they were glittering as the wheels moved. Something like this. You can imagine one of those between each of our four living creatures, underneath their outstretched arms. 
So at this point, I'll allow our four living creatures to go back to their seats, please. Thank you very much for your help. What Ezekiel has actually seen so far is a living, moving, glittering chariot. We already know that the chariot can go horizontally in any direction. Verses 19 and 20 tell us it can also move vertically. It can rise. And the point is there are no limitations whatsoever on the movement of this chariot. Nowhere is out of range or out of reach. Not even pagan Babylon. But we have to ask, what is it for? The rest of the chapter tells us that this chariot is carrying a throne. Look at verse 22. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out towards one towards the other, and each had two wings covering its body. The word expanse here should probably be translated platform. So the chariot made out of living creatures is not the main event here. It's not the focus of the vision at all. As impressive as the base is, it's nothing compared to what is resting on top of the base, which is described for us in verse 25 and following. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. Ezekiel sees the throne and the one who sits on the throne. First of all, his eyes are drawn to the throne itself. It looks like it's made of sapphire. So it's like a solid jewel. But Ezekiel's eyes don't stay on the throne for very long because his eyes are drawn to the one who sits on the throne. And yet he can barely describe for us what he sees. If he's had trouble describing everything else, he has even more trouble here. As I read part of this again, notice how every single comment Ezekiel makes is a comparison. From the middle of verse 26, High above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. And in case we miss the fact that Ezekiel is lost for words, He goes on to say in verse 28, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. 
In other words, I know what it was I saw. It was the glory of the Lord. But the words that I've used don't come close to describing what I saw. They just give you the appearance of the likeness of what I saw. And you'll notice Ezekiel doesn't even attempt to describe the face of the one he saw on the throne. Today, we throw the word glory around pretty easily. Football commentators use the word all the time. If somebody takes a wild shot that ends up in the crowd, their response is, oh, he really went for glory there. But glory is one of those words that as Christians we ought to use very sparingly. Awesome is another one. When we use those words to describe somebody kicking a football, what words do we have left to talk about God? The root meaning of the word glory is heavy. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called The Weight of Glory. That's W-E-I-G-H-T. If something is glorious, it's heavy with value and worth. What Ezekiel has been trying to give us is a sense of the weight of God's majesty. This God is surrounded by light, but he's not lightweight. He moves swiftly, but he's not airy. He's not insubstantial. Everything about him shines, but he's not frivolous. He is substantial and significant and firm. And yet he's not ponderous or sluggish or dull. He's glorious. And before this vision of the glory of the Lord, Ezekiel falls face down. Next week we'll find out what the voice says to him. But for now we're going to leave Ezekiel on his face before the Lord in his transcendent active majesty. The top of the screen says this is the vision we need. How is it the vision we need? Well, leaving aside Ezekiel's vision for a moment, the word vision is everywhere today. Leaders are told they need to have vision. That's the case in business and it's the case in church. And it's true, we do need vision. It's biblical. Proverbs 29 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. As Christians and as a church, we need a vision. The problem is that very often our vision is faulty. This is how a pastor called John Ortberg puts it. Vision is fundamental to the health of your church. But I'll tell you right now, it's probably not the kind of vision you're thinking about. It is not a vision of human activity. It is a vision of what already is. It is a vision of God. The number one vision problem with churches today is not leaders who lack a vision. The real problem is when our primary focus shifts from who God is to what we are doing. He's exactly right. Of course, God has things for us to do. We saw that clearly last week at the end of Luke's Gospel. We are his witnesses. 
And next week we'll see the job that God gave Ezekiel to do. But over and above any things that we might do, this is the vision we must have. If we lose our vision of the transcendence and the weightiness and the activeness of God, if we lose sight of the pure worthiness of God, then all our busyness and activity becomes just a way of making ourselves feel useful and worthwhile and successful. Ezekiel is about to set off on a roller coaster ride of service for God. But before any of that, God comes to him and gives him the vision he needs. It's a vision of the Lord on his throne, sovereign and glorious, able in a moment to bring his fire and his light anywhere in all of creation. Now, in case there's any misunderstanding, I'm not saying we need to spend our days trying to visualize God on his throne. It's helpful to visualize this. But we've already noticed that Ezekiel is barely able to describe what he saw. He's trying to describe the indescribable. So the key thing here is not so much the little details of the picture. The point is we need to live with a sense of the majesty and transcendence of God. We need to get out of bed in the morning knowing that the God we serve is glorious. He's worthy. He's able to reach us wherever we are. That's what we mean when we say this is the vision we need. We need this vision to wake us up in our sin. This God is pure fire. He's pure majesty. Are we going to try and ignore him? Are we going to try and say no to him? And we need this vision in our suffering and our loneliness. This is the God who sees us. It's the God who comes to us and speaks to us. And we need this vision in our successes. Because this is the God who is above us and greater than us. Before this God, all of our achievements are nothing. We can't boast before this God. We can only fall on our faces and worship him. Those outside the church need to be shown this vision too. So often we put our focus on what might get people into the church or what might keep our young people in the church. The group Lost and Found wrote a song from the perspective of someone visiting church. The song says, They strive for attendance, while I starve for transcendence. When visitors come here, they need a sense that we're here to worship a God who is bigger and greater and more worthy than anything else in the universe. People might not even realize it, but they are starving for transcendence. And God forgive us if we ever give them some lesser vision. What we all need is a vision of the glory of the Lord. We need to show others a vision of the glory of the Lord. 
God forgive us if our church ever becomes just a polished up version of a village pub. Somewhere to meet together and socialize and hear the songs that we like. We meet together to renew our vision of God on his throne. And to worship him on his throne. And please don't misunderstand, tradition does not equal transcendence. Being solemn does not equal transcendence. Wearing a suit doesn't equal transcendence. Talking an obscure language with a strange voice does not equal transcendence. So we're not talking here about being off in the clouds and out of touch with reality. The point I'm trying to make is that as God's people, we need to look up beyond ourselves. We need to fix our hearts and our minds on the one who holds this world in his hand. We need to point others in the same direction. Our kids need to know that church is about a whole lot more than just them being catered to or not catered to. They need to know the church is about the God who's worth living and dying for. They need to know that reality is bigger than what they can see and feel. They need to know about the God who is transcendent and active and powerful. Yes, you and I are living in exile. And at times it might seem like we're living in a God-forsaken place. But our God has not changed since Ezekiel saw him by the Kebar River in Babylon. He's just as powerful and he's just as glorious. He's just as worthy of honor. And we're going to honor him now as we sing, first of all, majesty of heaven and then the splendor of the king.